Since it's been three weeks since we've looked at this chapter, we'll do a little more of a review than I, I normally would. So chapter 19 is the law of God. The big important point in this chapter is that the law of God expresses his moral character, which he wrote into the heart or nature of humanity and creation. And this is the image of God that lives in all people. As such, the authority of the law of God rules over all people forever. And one of the things we discovered was that the actual image of God, and that is absolute purity and goodness, humanity lost that. But what <clears throat> was retained through the law of God uh, uh, is still there, although it's distorted and polluted by sin. Uh, this chapter <clears throat> falls into uh, a very specific outline. And uh, as I mentioned in our first lesson, uh, I have to give credit to Dr. Uh, James Renahan for this outline. Uh, <clears throat> the first section is the history of salvation. And that covers paragraphs one through five. Paragraph six and seven is the order of salvation. And uh, in looking at the history of salvation, uh, the first part of it is creation law. And then the second part of it is written law. Whenever we talk about the history of salvation in connection with law, when God gives the law and the test for that law in the garden, Along with that, he gives a promise, and that's a promise of salvation. So God's law and the obedience or fulfillment of that law and salvation are inextricably connected. You can't, you can't split them apart. So I, that's why we talk about this in terms of the history of salvation. So there's first of all the creation law and then the written law, which are the moral commandments to Israel, and the written law then uh, given to Israel breaks into three parts, Israel's ceremonial laws, Israel's civil or judicial laws. And then we come to chapter five, which talks about the continuing authority of the moral law. In other words, are the 10 commandments still applicable to us today? Do we still have to obey the 10 commandments? And, and it may surprise some of you to, to know or discover that there are many churches that teach that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments, that they're obsolete. Then there's the order of salvation that is uh, discussed in paragraph six, how Christians must use the moral law in paragraph seven uh, that concerns Christ and the Christian's obedience. Paragraph one is creation law, and that is simply the law that God wrote on the hearts of mankind. There was a specific command given to Adam and Eve, which was a test, gave, uh, gave them a test or probation to see if they would obey, and they failed to obey. So God's uh, law was written on the hearts of humanity and creation. We, we looked at the text which uh, supports that, which means then that <clears throat> excuse me, uh, aspects of God's moral law still function in all human beings. That's why we have a conscience. That's why we know right from wrong. That's why we, when we go from one civilization to another, we see laws against murder. We see laws against stealing because uh, there are aspects of the moral law of God uh, that even though polluted still affect humanity. 
And the fact is that God's moral law obligates all human beings, believers and unbelievers, to obey it. So that was a very brief review of God's law in creation. Do you have any questions about that? It's simply, whenever we talk about God's law in creation, we're simply talking about the fact that God wrote his law on the hearts of humanity, into our nature when he created humanity. And that law has become polluted, but it's still there, polluted and corrupted by sin. That brings us to paragraph two on the moral commandments to Israel, and these are the Ten Commandments. And what we must keep in mind is that the Ten Commandments uh, is just a summary of God's law. Uh, they're just a summary. And how we can see that is if we, if we then look at the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws, what we find are detailed applications of how the moral law applies in our lives and in society. I think uh, I gave one example of uh, the moral law just being a, a summary of God's law. When we look at the ninth commandment, it says, uh, which we're told we must not bear false witness, you shall not bear false witness. In other words, the direct statement is you must not give <clears throat> uh, false testimony about your neighbor in a court of law. But that extends then beyond just giving false testimony because it's just a summary of God's law. It means that we must not lie. We must always tell the truth. But it means more than that. It means that <clears throat> instead of lying about your neighbor, you have an obligation to protect his reputation. And you see how that law starts to spread out into its application in our lives. If you're with a group of people and uh, some of those people like to gossip and they start gossiping, I know none of you have ever gossiped, so I may need to describe the word, but define it. But uh, <laughs> if you're with a group of people and. <laughs> yeah, on the way. And uh, they start gossiping about me, then. <laughs> or anyone else for that matter. Then to obey the ninth commandment, you have an obligation to defend my reputation. And you defend that in two ways. One is by not participating in the gossip, and second, if it's appropriate and you have opportunity, bring it to the attention of the people that they are attacking my reputation. They're harming my reputation by what they're saying. Okay, so <clears throat> the written law is a summary of God's law. Um, it's the same law that was written on the hearts of humanity but the law written on the heart of humanity is more extensive than the Ten Commandments because it's just the Ten Commandments exploded, if, if you think about it that way, in full application. Ten Commandments are made up of two groups of commandments, our duty to God, commandments one through four, and our duty to humanity, commandments five through ten. And here we see the... Uh, Two 
greatest commandments contained within the Ten Commandments. The first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. And the specifics of that command then are taken, are expressed in the first four commandments. And then the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the specifics of that command are detailed in commandments five through 10. That brings us to Israel's ceremonial laws. Now, <clears throat> Israel's ceremonial laws are uh, the laws involving worship, everything connected with worship and the temple. Uh, <clears throat> not only what to do, but commands about the tools and the utensils to be used in the temple and the kind of incense to burn. I don't know if any of you have studied it or not, but there's a specific formula for the incense that is to be burned in the temple. And that incense represents the prayers of the people. It was a death sentence to use that formula for anything else except the incense in the temple. It was against the law. It was against the judicial law to use that formula for anything else except uh, the incense in the temple. <clears throat> now, the interesting thing about the ceremonial laws, as well as the judicial laws, as I mentioned previously, is they all flow from the Ten Commandments. Um, one example, because uh, that I can, I can apply, I think, uh, I won't spend a great deal of time on it, but it's just a matter of giving. Uh, there's different kinds of different approaches to and different understandings about how we should give to support the, the work of the kingdom in the world, to support the work of the church. Personally, I believe, and I, I, I teach, but I'm not dogmatic about it, that when uh, that the Bible teaches that we are to give 10% of our gross income. Wow, that's a lot. I remember when I first heard that, I thought I could never do that. And then I learned that the first thing I had to do was get my heart right. And when I got my heart right, I couldn't do it overnight because I had all kinds of obligations and bills already that I impossible for me to do. But when I got my heart right and when I stopped asking how much do I have to give, and started asking how much can I give, that's when my, my giving changed. And it changed gradually to the point that I, I was able to, you know, not only give 10%, but more at times. Now, but there are pastors and there are churches, there are renowned people and theologians, I'll, I'll name a few, Luther, uh, 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 John Owen, probably one of the greatest uh, theologians in uh, the Eng English theologians in the world. Uh, they didn't, and there are others, but they did not believe in a 10% tithe, and they made a case for it. However, it's very interesting how they approached it. They said that the tithe was part of the ceremonial law, and the difference between their position and mine is I believe it's part of natural law. It goes all the way back to Abraham, but uh, before the ceremonial law, but they approach it by saying the, the tithe was actually a part of the ceremonial law, and the, 
And it, it flows then from our love for God. That is, the, the giving in the Old Testament was to be an expression of the people's love for God. Well, nothing has changed. And then if we look at what they do then is they take the, the greatest commandment that says you're to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they say, if, if you're obeying that command, then your heart then should be leading you to love God by your giving. Because if, if, if we're following Christ and God, Christ has paid for our sins and given us everlasting life and changed our lives completely, then we should love him, God says, above everything else and above our money. And so how do we handle that? Well, according to that approach then, our question should be, how much, it should not be how much do I have to give, but how much can I give, and start budgeting uh, handling our budget to do that. But that, that's just one example of the ceremonial laws, how um, the, the moral law flows into the ceremonial laws. Now the other thing about the ceremonial laws is that the ceremonial laws were pictures that pointed to Christ. The sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice of Christ for sins. The incense was a picture of the prayers of the people and the bread of the presence was a picture of God's presence with his people, and so on. So all of the ceremonial laws were designed to point our attention to Christ, point the attention of the people to Christ and what he would do. And then the civil laws were the laws that governed Israel when Israel was a theocracy. And the word theocracy means that it's a, a nation, a geopolitical nation that is directly governed by God. So as long as Israel was a theocracy, even when it had kings, the civil laws were laws given, or the judicial laws were laws given by God. And those laws no longer obligate anyone uh, because none of us are part of old national Israel governed directly by God. Uh, the judicial laws ended with the destruction of the nation of Israel. And <clears throat> after that, Israel was governed by other nations and the judicial laws uh, weren't the controlling over the nation, although the other nations did give the Jews some uh, latitude in applying their laws. <clears throat> All right, then we come to the continuing authority of the moral law. And this is the part that's really important for us to understand because <clears throat> when we listen to other preachers or listen to other churches, we need to understand that there are different approaches to an understanding of the Ten Commandments, the moral law. Paragraph 5 says, the moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. So the moral law continues to apply to us. It forever requires obedience of believers and unbelievers. 
Now the covenant with Moses passed away with the coming of Christ and the accomplishment of the new covenant. Let me talk about a covenant for a moment. A covenant <clears throat> really means God's arrangement for how he relates to human beings. Uh, it's God's promises. It's not a negotiated contract. Today, in legal terms, a covenant is a contract, and it's a negotiated contract. But God doesn't negotiate with anybody. God comes to Adam, and he says, I'm, <clears throat> he says uh, you must do this. And that's called a covenant of works. He says, you must not eat from this tree or you will die. But if you, if you don't eat from the tree, you will live forever. So that tells Adam what he has to do, and that tells Adam what God's going to do. Now, it's the same thing, and there are various other covenants, but the one we're talking about this morning is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant with Moses. And with Moses, God made a promise to the people of Israel. Essentially, that promise is a promise of land. He says, if you obey these commandments, you know, I will let you live and I will give you the land of Israel. I'll give you the land of Canaan. Well, he fulfills that promise in the Old Testament. He gives them the land of Canaan, even though they never perfectly obeyed the law. And the, the requirement was always to obey the law or you will die. The consequence of, of breaking the law was death. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> but throughout the Bible, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15, into the New Testament, God is always talking in one way or another about a new, com new covenant or a new promise. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, I will, I, will write my, I will make a new covenant with you. I'll make a new promise. I'm going to do that in the future, he says. I'll write my law in your hearts, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And there he's talking about once again writing his law in a perfect way, so the law in our hearts is, is no longer polluted. Uh, we understand it uh, as it was given to be a perfect obedience and the character of God. <clears throat> so this new covenant is a new promise that points to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who's going to come then and live a sinless life in our place. He's going to perfectly obey God's moral law as a man. And God is going to accept his obedience in place of ours. He's going to apply that to us. And we actually then, when Christ, by his Holy Spirit, gives us spiritual life, when he calls us to him, and we're born again and we're united spiritually with Christ, we share in that obedience of Christ. Uh, it's not something that's just painted on us someplace, applied to us and painted on part of us. We share in that perfect obedience of Christ. And then Christ, part of that promise from God is that, that he would then take care of our sins, which he does by Christ suffering the punishment for our sins, essentially an eternity of hell separated from God somehow. He suffered that in his human nature on the cross, and then God raised him from the dead. So <clears throat> Moses, the covenant with Moses, that part of the covenant is passed away. God 
isn't promising us if we obey the law, he will give us land someplace. That's not his promise. He's, he says, if you believe in my son who has perfectly obeyed the law for you and taken care of your sin, I'll, I'll give you everlasting life. Okay. I already mentioned God's covenants are not negotiated covenants. Uh, God's covenant with Moses was a covenant of law and uh, the Hebrews were required to obey all the laws, moral, ceremonial, and civil, and God promised them land and blessings for their obedience. And uh, if you have time sometime, you should read Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a very interesting chapter that outlines the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. In fact, it's not only interesting, when you get to the curses, they're frightening. if you, if you really understand what they mean. And also, Israel suffered all of those curses because they, they turned away from God. Although the covenant with Moses has passed away, the application and authority of the moral law continues because the moral character of God was written into human nature at creation And that character is summarized in the Ten Commandments. God gave humanity that summary and requires that all of humanity obey that law. Now, any questions about what I've said about the continuity or the continuing application of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments? Okay. So there are false teachings about God's moral law. There's New Covenant theology. Uh, In New Covenant theology, uh, they teach that the Sabbath was a sign of God establishing the nation of Israel when he gave the Ten Commandments and is no longer binding. Well, the problem with that is that the Sabbath existed beginning in creation. And in fact, the Sabbath was practiced even by Cain and Abel and by the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, by Noah. And uh, I can show that to you in Scripture. One of these days I'll preach a sermon on the Sabbath and uh, outline that for you because it's very interesting study. So the The one day and seven set aside for God continued from creation all the way through to today. Uh, It wasn't something that was established when God gave the moral law. But uh, New Covenant theology teaches that the Sabbath was a sign of God establishing the nation of Israel. All of God's laws, they also teach that all of God's laws in the Old Testament are obsolete including the Ten Commandments, because they have been fulfilled by Christ. Now, the ceremonial laws are obsolete because they pointed to Christ, and now the real thing is here. They were the shadow, or the the picture, and now the real things come, and they're no longer necessary. The judicial laws were simply for governing the nation of Israel while God govern that nation and God no longer governs the geopolitical nation of Israel. So those laws no longer exist. But 
It is true that Christ completely obeyed the Ten Commandments, and he did completely obey them in our place perfectly, but that doesn't free us from obeying them because God's moral law still applies to us. Christians are bound by the law of God, the, the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. That's what New Covenant theology teaches. In other words, they say, you're not bound by the Ten Commandments, you're just bound by these two commandments that talk about love. So you are to love however you're going to define that, and that's about as far as their theology goes. Now, it's important to note that New Covenant theology is fairly new arriving on the scene, and there are all different kinds of flavors and directions of that right now. So it, it really hasn't been uh, carefully organized into a theological system. I have a theory about uh, New Covenant theology, my opinion, let me say that, my opinion about New Covenant theology and dispensationalism. I believe the primary motivating uh, reasons for those approaches to scripture was to eliminate the Sabbath day as a requirement because that's what both of them do in one way or, uh, well, both of them do that directly. I mean, that's just right up front. Both of them teach the same thing. Um, in addition to the two greatest commandments, New Covenant theologians teach that Christians are also bound by the law of Christ, which is the law of love, the example of the Lord Jesus, Christ's commands and teachings, commands and teachings of the New Testament, and all scripture in, interpreted in the light of Jesus Christ. Um, certainly, those things are true. You know, we we want to live by the example of Christ, but what what we're commanded to do, we're commanded in the Ten Commandments. And essentially, New Covenant theology and Old Covenant and dispensationalism teach that the Old Testament is obsolete, that it was written only for the Jews and uh, to give us a promise of the, new, of the coming of Christ. Now, local New Covenant churches, Tapestry Community Church in Belton is a New Covenant church. If you look on their website, it does not, it does not say we are a New Covenant church. But if you read their statement of faith carefully, you'll, you'll find the uh, indications there. And uh, uh, that's certainly what they, the position they take when they're preaching and teaching. Grace Reformed Church in Belton is a new church plant. Uh, it uh, holds to the First London uh, Baptist Confession, which is interesting. The man who just planted that church was the pastor of Tapestry Community Church until sometime this year. I don't know why he then went to plant a new church in Belton, but um, he has a wrong understanding of the First London Confession because he's embracing the First London uh, Confession because it does not have a chapter on the law and it does not have a chapter on the Sabbath day. So that's... New Covenant Theology. Any questions about New Covenant Theology? At least what brief information I was able to give you. 
All right, let's talk about classic dispensationalism for a moment. This may be a little more familiar to uh, many of you. This is a theology that was formalized by a man named Charles Darby, who lived uh, between 1800 and 1882 in England. Um, And what he taught was, and what dispensationalism, classic dispensationalism teaches, and let me clarify, we'll talk about uh, uh, revised uh, uh, or what some dispensationalists call progressive dispensationalism in a moment. But <clears throat> classic dispensationalism w- was what was originally developed. There came to be uh, enough problems with that that some of the uh, more intelligent dispensational theologians then decided they would change their approach in certain ways. And uh, one of the most famous dispensationalists currently is a man named John MacArthur, which you may have heard of. So, uh, classic dispensationalism teaches that the Old Testament was and is only for the Jews. It teaches that God has had one plan for the geopolitical nation of Israel and a different plan for the church. Now, classic dispensationalism taught that God had a plan for Israel when he sent Christ. And he sent Christ to the Jews first. And because the Jews rejected him, then God chose plan B, which was the salvation of the Gentiles. But hypothetically, under classic dispensationalism, had the Jews accepted him, then salvation would not have been open to you and I. Uh, They teach the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in in Jerusalem. Of course, that involves at least two and probably three returns of Christ rather than just a second coming where he judges the world. All of God's law in the Old Testament is obsolete according to classic dispensationalism, including the Ten Commandments. Uh, They say, as I stated earlier, that nine commandments have been fulfilled by Christ. The fourth commandment was a sign of the establishment of the nation of Israel, which applied only to the existence of Israel as a nation ruled by God. So in this sense, classic dispensationalism is very much like New New Covenant theology. The Old Testament is obsolete. The Ten Commandments have been fulfilled by Christ. And the fourth commandment was just a sign of the establishment of the nation of Israel, and it doesn't apply to us anymore. You don't have to worship God. There isn't one day that's God's day. Uh, You can have your worship service uh, Saturday morning. Uh, When I was in California, there were churches that uh, would have two worship services on Saturday, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, and then two worship services on Sunday didn't matter which one you went to because your religious obligation was satisfied if you just came to one of those services for an hour and a half and you were good with God. So uh, there wasn't... Now, you don't, a church does not have to be a new covenant or a dispensational church to operate that way. Most evangelical churches do not teach that the Sabbath day is God's day and to be kept only for God. 
to be set aside only for the things that God says we are to use it for. I'm not going to go through the teaching of the Sabbath, but there, are, there is work we can do on the Sabbath. There work we, there's work we have to do. And there are things that we must do in relation to God and in relation to ourselves. It's also a day of rest. Okay, physical rest as well as rest from our normal works and recreations. That's classic dispensationalism. Revised dispensationalism is where John MacArthur would fit. Not a lot of difference, really. It's the same as classic dispensationalism in A through E. But the nuance, I should say, uh, which means carefully dance around the Ten Commandments. And they say God's moral commands in the Old Testament show great continuity with what God expects from believers in this age. Notice they don't say that God's commands in the Old Testament apply. They just say they show great continuity with God's expectation for New Testament believers. And then it goes on to say, Nine of the original Ten Commandments are picked up and reapplied as part of the law of Christ in the New Testament. And what they're talking about there are those sections, such as in Matthew 5 and 6, where Jesus talks about adultery and murder and uh, stealing. So they're saying that uh, what what Christ does by those teachings is affirm those commandments. Now, see, the difference is they're, they're, they're not saying here that Christ's fulfillment of those nine commandments uh, completely obliterates them. They're saying that there's a continuity because Christ talks about those nine commandments in the New Testament. But then they go on to say the one exception is the command for the Sabbath because it was a sign for the nation of Israel. Jesus talks more about the Sabbath day directly than he does any of the other commandments in the New Testament. John MacArthur says, the Ten Commandments are reflective of the moral virtues of God that should be manifest in the lives of Christians. They still become the obligation of the believer to live out the law of God. I said it was nuanced. You see what he's saying here, he's not saying that those Ten Commandments still apply. He's saying they reflect the moral virtues of God and should, should be manifest in the lives of Christians, not a command, should still become the obligation of the believer to live out the law of God but the believer isn't commanded to do that. He's getting close because John MacArthur is very smart and he looks at the Bible and he looks at the Ten Commandments. He's not the only one that's a revised dispensationalist, by the way. But he looks at them and he says, we can't simply say that these are obsolete and we're on our own. But he can't, cannot, at the same time, bring himself to say, these are commandments and you still have to obey them. The reason he can't do that is because his whole theology is based on one plan for the nation of Israel 
and one plan for everybody else, one plan for the church. Um, MacArthur goes on, God added to the nine moral commandments the commandment about the Sabbath. That, of course, was the Old Testament standard. Of course it was, from creation on. The nine moral commandments are repeated by Christ in the New Testament, but the commandment regarding the Sabbath was not repeated, having been fulfilled by Christ. And MacArthur just misreads the New Testament is what he does. Uh, and I, I, I don't say he does that willfully. Uh, it's just driven by his, his, the foundation of his theology. Jack MacArthur, his father, was a dyed-in-the-wool, strict, dis, classic dispensationalist. And that's how John MacArthur grew up. Local churches, there are probably more that are, that are dispensational. Uh, but it's... <clears throat> uh, Typically how you find a dispensational church is if you're reading their statement of faith, they will have something about the thousand-year reign of Christ or the rapture. Those are uh, code words that says, say we're dispensational. Temple Bible Church is a dispensational church. Okay, any questions about um, Classic dispensationalism, revised dispensationalism, or New Covenant theology. The problem with them is that they reject God's law. That's the problem. And although they come to the New Testament and pick up true aspects of the New Testament to try to replace the clarity of the law, what it ends up doing is leaving the unbeliever, especially as well as the believer somewhat confused in what, the, what God's requirements are. That's why God was so clear in summarizing them in the Ten Commandments. Paragraph 6. How Christians must use the moral law. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works. That is, there's not a promise there that if we, if we do work, God will uh, 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 pay us, in a sense, for doing what he commands. Uh, it is not a covenant of works to be justified or, or saved or condemned by it. Yet, it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts, that is, its commands. It also exposes the sinful corruption of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. So, <clears throat> the... The law still applies, but it is not something that we earn our salvation from, nor it is not something that we earn God's blessing. Uh, you know, I talked to a young man one time who had gone through a horrible experience, and he said, I don't understand. I have done everything right. I have done everything right, and God allowed this to happen, and it was a terrible experience. 
God allowed, allowed this to happen in my life. I don't understand. Well, his thinking is, since I've, stri- I've been striving to obey God vigorously, then God was obligated to bless me because I was obeying. But that's not what the Ten Commandments are. That's not what the moral law is. Paragraph 6 goes on to say, the punishment threatened by the law shows them what even, what, uh, even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, that is, uh, to unbelievers, even though they are freed, I mean, to believers, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings they may expect when they keep it. Even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. Striving to obey the Ten Commandments cannot save anyone. Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified or saved by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be saved, justified, by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh, that is, no human being, shall be saved, or no human being shall be justified. So there are some continuing applications of the moral law to the Christian life. As a rule of life, it shows us God's will and our duty. God's moral law directs us to obey commands, shows us the sinful pollution of our natures, hearts, and lives, restrains our sinful desires because the law forbids sin. The punishments threatened show what our sins deserve and the possible consequences. And in thinking about the punishments then, it gives us cause to be constantly thankful to God that he's saved us from the punishment that we deserve for the sins we still commit. And the promises show God's approval of obedience and possible blessings. So those are the continuing applications of the law in the Christian's life. So we are just exactly on time. We will pick up paragraph 7 next week and then begin another study. We do have time for a few questions. Does anyone have any questions about our study of chapter 19? I know I go through these chapters pretty quickly, but... I want to make sure that if you have any questions, uh, we have an opportunity to answer them. Okay, yes? I've got one question. So, during the portion where you were talking about dispensationalists, uh, obviously you were talking about a lot of, a lot of it was through uh, the book of Revelation, their interpretation of the book of Revelation. I think a lot of the discourse that we have right now in society regarding the book of Revelation is heavily flavored by. John MacArthur's views on it. Uh, Timothy Blahey wrote the Left Behind series of novels that got turned yeah. into a movie. Uh, they were late great planet Earth. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of that, that was uh, Hal Lindsey, right? I believe. Uh, yeah, Hal Lindsey. Um, so with that, are we going to touch upon uh, Calvin's teaching in the Book of Revelation at any point during this series or during a future series? 
no, uh, not in this series. You know, we, we'll teach on the book of Revelation at some point, probably preach through it. Uh, that's what it would take. If you're interested in a, in a good non-dispensational book, uh, there's a book um, by a man named William Hendrickson called More Than Conquerors. And that really uh, connects all the dots about Revelation because <clears throat> what the dispensationalists do is they come to Revelation and they take sections of it, uh, most of it, very literally, you know, and uh, try to make applications of it. Uh, but what Hendrickson does is he approaches it uh, by the kind of literature it is, and it's called uh, apocryphal, illiter apocalyptic literature, very symbolic. Everything in Revelation is extremely symbolic. It's symbolizing something else. And you really have to go to Thessalonians and Ezekiel and Daniel to have a good understanding of, of what uh, the Apostle John is talking about in Revelation. But we will get there. But if you, if you want a good understanding before we get there, pick up uh, More Than Conquerors. That will help you.